1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Paul Nepper, and today we'll be talking to Carl Rommel about his book Egypt's Football Revolution: Emotion, Masculinity, and Uneasy Politics. Carl, welcome to the show. Thank you, Paul. I'm really happy to be here. Um, I so Carl is in Cairo right now. This is I, I have I've never done a podcast with someone in the Middle East, so this is kind of exciting. Um, Carl, I wonder if you could start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself.
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm a Swedish uh, social anthropologist who did most of my studies in London, uh, university, uh, SOAS, University of London. And since 2007, I also spent a large part of my time in Cairo, Egypt, initially as a language student, and since 2011, roughly, uh, doing ethnographic fieldwork in, in the city. So uh, first for my PhD and then for postdoctoral research. So over the last four years, I've been a postdoctoral researcher in Helsinki, University of Helsinki, Finland, in a project called Cross Locations. It's an European Research Council-funded project uh, that looks at a sort of the Mediterranean uh, as a regional space with different locations, connections, and disconnections. Um, I'm also doing new research right now about um, dreams and allure of projects of different scales and kinds in Cairo. And I should also say, I guess, that I've been, always been a very passionate football fan. Uh, the club of my heart is IK Sirius, uh, rather mediocre mid-table club from Uppsala in Sweden, where I'm coming from.
1: All right. So how did the, how did the idea for this book come about?
0: So I guess uh, the world of football in general and fan culture in particular has always interested me a great deal. Uh, I'm always, as said, I'm a big football fan myself, and wherever I've been traveling, I've always been trying to sort of attend games, watch stadiums, trying to get a sense of supporters and understand how supportive culture relates to society, politics, uh, social identity. And when I first moved to Cairo, I was sort of struck by how extremely football mad this place is. The football is just everywhere. People spoke about the sport all the time, uh, huge uh, sort of I witnessed huge street celebrations after national team victories. So, when I was supposed to sort of uh, propose, uh, make a proposal for a PhD studies, uh, I wanted to include sort of combine football in Cairo in some way, right? And I proposed a study. At a time, there was a sort of an ethnography of football supporters in a neighborhood in Cairo about sort of everyday masculinities and how football works as this sort of semiotic resource that people uh, use and mobilize to to create themselves as as male subjects, I guess. So. What happened is that I I got admitted to the PhD program at SOAS in 2010 and I was, I started in autumn, 2010. And then just a few months later in January, 2011, Egypt is struck by the, the, this big revolution, right? January 2011 revolution, which changed football uh, beyond recognition. So when I started to do my fieldwork in 2011, uh, it's the summer of 2011, uh, football was not at all this sort of everyday background noise that I had envisioned. Instead the game was sort of very much entangled in a period of swift revolutionary transformation. So it was both being encapsulated by the revolution, but also having a great impact on the revolutionary transition. So what I've been what I had to study, and what I had studied during my PhD research, which is the sort of the basis of this book, is a game undergoing very quick transformation. Uh, so uh, football becoming something that it didn't it wasn't in the past, football becoming extremely politicized in various ways and also football losing its 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 previous uh, position in Egyptian culture. So a lot of people fans that I talked to were saying, "Oh, we used to love football a lot in the past, but nowadays we don't really care that much about the games." I was interested in that that transformation of a huge popular culture phenomena uh, during a period of rapid revolutionary change.
1: Going backwards a bit, what what was the role how would you how would you describe football's role in egyptian society historically
0: so okay so in many as in many places in the world i guess uh, football was introduced by uh, the, the colonial powers by the british in this case in Italy, uh, in, in egypt in the late 19th century uh, by army conscripts but very quickly was taken up by um, by the nationalist uh, pro independence movement as this uh, vehicle for for na- nation building um, and uh, pro-independent, pro-independent struggle. So the biggest Cairo club, for example, for example Al-Akli, which is the biggest club in Egypt, was explicitly established in 1907 as an effort to improve the physical abilities of uh, national Egyptians. To, to create this sort of also physical side of the, of the nationalist movement. And from that moment on, I suppose, uh, there's always been an assumption that sort of achievements on the football pitch reflect uh, achievements of the nation at large. And this is something that's been explored by a historian, Wilson Jacob, for example. So, And from the 20s and 30s, uh, the game developed into... Uh, Egypt's by far most popular sport and the sort of unquestionably national sport. And there's also this rivalry between the two biggest clubs, el Ahly on the one hand and El-Zamalek on the other hand, which forms um, I guess a um, keynote throughout uh, the 20th century. Uh, and one more thing that we might be important to know it is that football in, in Egypt in, in contrast to in many other places in the world, does not really like accentuate and and create national regional divisions inside the Egyptian nation-state. So most people in Egypt all across the nation uh, support Al-Akhli or or Zamalek, most often Al-Akhli. The only exception are a few cities along the Suez Canal, Port Said and Ismailia and Suez, where you have strong sort of regional teams. But this has meant that football, instead of sort of creating these regional divisions inside a nation state, has more mostly been an arena to define what the whole Egypt is about, the whole nation is about, the whole people. And this has also made it very important as a as as a, um, a politically that uh, loads of the political leaders have been very uh, keen on using this this uh, this this, um, this national game too to sort of. Define what a nation is and should be about. I think from King Farouk in the 1940s, Nasser in the 50s and 60s, and most importantly, Mubarak, President Mubarak in the 80s and 90s and 2000, which is what my book is mostly dealing with.
1: Is is that is the link between football and nationalism? uh, Is that particular to Egypt, or is that something that's common in? Uh, other Middle Eastern or African countries? Or is that is that very specific to Egypt, would
0: you say? I think, I think it's both. Uh, so I think uh, obviously football is a very popular sport in many other countries uh, all across the region as well. Although uh, I think there is also specificity to the Egyptian case, and especially in that period of the Mubarak era and the late Mubarak era, which my book is, is focusing on quite a lot. Uh, When football emerged as this extremely popular, uh, and it was a huge hype around the game for several reasons, uh, partly because of money, because of the way it was, the the game, the the Egyptian teams were extremely successful and the ways in which uh, football became um, also part of popular culture, was part of many movies and then pop songs, etc. So I think um, that the the game is extremely popular across the region and in many different places in the world, in, in the Middle East and the Arab world, football has been uh, maybe trying, so there have been efforts to use the game politically by political, uh, by, 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 by political leaders. But I think there's also specificity, especially to that, the, the last uh, five or six years before the 2011 revolution, when in Egypt, uh, there was a, Particularly large hype around the game that is sort of unprecedented, and it was, uh, and which made it even more uh, a more powerful part of the, the Mubarak uh, regime's uh, soft power.
1: Something I was I was struck by in, in reading the book was the 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 degree to which the government was involved in the in in the running of of the game. You know, I I mean my my. Frame of reference is the United States, and and um, where it's very much um, you know private. The t- the teams are privately owned and run by private leagues. Um, so I, I i i was fascinated by how, as I said, how much the government was involved in in the actual day to day running
0: of of football in Egypt. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely, and this is this is an important part of that thing that I just mentioned about this extremely powerful uh, or unprecedented football hype that was built up in the 90s and 2000s in Egypt during the latter stages of the Mubarak era. So this was a period of time in which football is professionalized, at least semi-professionalized in Egypt uh, after 1990, basically. So salaries and transfer fees are rising quite rapidly, and this was especially so in the two biggest clubs at Aklil and Zamalek, which also managed to strike new advertisement deals and and, and and increasing their revenues quite a lot. At the same time, smaller provincial clubs, clubs in Egypt traditionally have been sort of popular membership-based clubs in, in small cities. They couldn't really increase the revenues in the same way, so the differences between the big the, the, the big clubs and the smaller clubs increased in the league, and the, the league became quite uneven. What is happening at roughly the same time, though, is that another type of clubs begin to appear in in Egyptian in the Egyptian Premier League. So it's like so-called company clubs, and they are sharikat in Arabic. And these are basically teams run by the social clubs of large companies, most of which are state-owned. Okay, so, And, and the, the, the reason for why these clubs became so competitive was that it was very easy for them, in contrast to smaller popular clubs from provincial cities, to just channel a bit of their revenues from their already enormous budgets into the football teams so to compete when, when, when more money was coming into the game. So the, the clubs themselves didn't really have any revenues but they should just like channel a small part of the, of the overall budget of, of the, of, of the government of the, of the company. Basically. So in the initial quite short period of time say between the mid 90s and mid 2000s you have uh, the, the sort of the structure, the teams in the Egyptian Premier League changed quite radically. So instead of having these classical popular clubs from Cairo and the provinces, you have all these teams belonging to the state bodies that enter the leagues. So you have the Minister of Interior as a club, the police as a club, but the military has three different clubs, the, the state oil company as a club, the state's gas company as a club, etc., 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 right? Uh, and all in all, this resulted in much more money coming into the league through this sort of indirect state funding that I think we could call it. And the league became the by far strongest in Africa. And this also secured a sort of competition in the league that was otherwise becoming quite unevenly balanced. Um, and this is part of why the Egyptian football also involved into this, the strongest in, in Africa at the time uh, in the late 2000s. Right.
1: And so you've talked a little bit about, you know, the, how the nationalism and and the you know stirred up kind of a football frenzy. I, I think you referred to it as a football craze bubble in, in the years um prior to the revolution. What did that look like? Can you give some examples or, or paint a picture a little bit of of, of of how that manifested in Egyptian society, that football craze bubble?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh so so what I do this is the first um, chapter of the book, it, it looks at football, this is what I call the football bubble uh, in Egypt between, say, 2006 and 2010. Uh, and this term of bubble is is a term that was originally coined by one coined by one of my closest interlocutors, right? So the reason for using the term bubble, I think, is that it illustrates, I think, both very well how football came to sort of encapsulate a nation, how, how it's sort of the national formation in Egypt, and football became this very central part of of Egyptian society, but also how this was something that first inflated very rapidly and then burst very quickly after 2011. So if you look at what happened during this time when the bubble was inflating, I'm trying to argue that this was an historically unique coming together of money, media, popular culture and unprecedented results on the pitch that created this sort of enormous hype around the game. So I just talked about the semi-formal state funding through these company clubs, and that was one part of the thing. Another another part of, of the bubble was the rapid rise of satellite television that happens in the 2000s in the Egypt. So all of a sudden, we have all these private satellite television channels that broadcast enormous amounts of football, and, and even more importantly, perhaps, football talk shows, enormously long football talk shows that just talk about politics, uh, well, uh, gossip, uh, celebrities, and football in the same, in some sort of very odd mix, right? There was also a lot of pop songs and, and movies focusing on football at the time. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, ex- Egyptian teams were extremely successful in this period. So Egypt, the national team, wins three consecutive African Cup of Nations in 2006, 8, and 2010. Um, so in terms of what this meant for nationalism, my argument is that this is a boom or bubble distributed very powerful emotions and affective registers all across the nation. And I used uh, Anne Stoller's uh, concept of an affective state to, to sort of theorize this formation. And, and football, in, in short, became a way of having fun and being a victorious Egyptian in an era otherwise dominated by frustration and despair. And I also argued that this this emotional way of relating to football defined a particular national and male normality. So how to be a normal Egyptian man at the time, you were supposed to like football, you're supposed to enjoy the victories and celebrate the national team. Conversely, if you didn't really like football, stereotypically these were intellectuals and Islamists, you were sort of depicted as somewhat, somewhat odd and abnormal. Okay. Uh, and this is something that I, an argument that I make based on interviews, but also on movies where this is very, very obvious, this otherness of the people who don't. like them. And finally, and maybe most importantly, this normal masculinity was, happened to be very well in line with uh, the masculinity or the public ethos uh, and the public persona of Hosni Mubarak, the president and his two sons, Alain Gamal. So they were, in a way, precisely this victorious and not particularly refined football man, right? Mubarak never built his popularity on being uh, sort of uh, cultivated or refined, particularly, but instead he was he was a normal football guy, right? So as a result, uh, football provided uh, the ruling family with a very accessible and unmatched opportunity to be uh, normal Egyptian being normal Egyptian men in a very positive and upbeat uh, and and sort of tap into a very positive and and upbeat version of the nation. Right. Uh, And in my book, I argue that this uh, made football a very important part of, of of the regime's sort of soft power in, in this period.
1: Yeah. And you do a nice job in the book of depicting how Mubarak and his sons use football to, and, and the, and the, you know, the kind of frenzy around it in the years prior to the revolution to manipulate the emotions of of the, the Egyptian people. Um, one, you know, noteworthy example is the Al-Salam ferry disaster in 2006. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, what that was all about and and how Mubarak responded to that.
0: Yeah, this is also a great question. So the Al-Salam 98 ferry was was a ferry that sank in the Red Sea between Saudi Arabia and Egypt in uh, 3rd of February 2006, more than 1,000 people died and drowned in the Red Sea. Uh, And as you say, the incident is crucial for the story that I'm telling. It's it's actually the way in which I start the entire book. like The the introductory chapter starts by by telling this story. Uh, And the reason for this is that it happens at the same time as uh, the African Cup of Nations was played in Cairo, or in Egypt, in 2006. Uh, And it was... So obvious when you sort of compare these two events that, that the Mubarak regime and Mubarak himself focused all his attention on the football tournament and didn't really care much about the, uh, the, 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 this extremely tragic disaster. And this is indicative of, of, of several things, I think, several issues that are sort of the heart of my argument that I think, first of all, it's obviously a very good illustration about sort of this football hype or bubble, which which started we should say in 2006, this like this Africa cup of nations in 2006 is very much the beginning of this unprecedented period of success for, for Egyptian football. So it shows how the, the the regime and also the people at large were sort of uh, encapsulated in this bubble, I guess, and, 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 and that, that sort of overshadowed this, this tragic disaster. But I think even more importantly, maybe is how this, 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 this story about the Al Salam tragic, the El Salam disaster, has been used in in more recent years as an as a sort of epitome of how problematic this era was. So when I've been talking to journalists and, and also normal fans in in the years, say from 2011 until today, this example always comes up as an example. this story always comes up as an example of how the, the problematic ways in which uh, the Mubarak regime used football politically, right? And it's also, it's also often figuring in, in, in arguments for why we shouldn't care as much about football today as we did in the past. It's sort of this, is almost epitomizes this, this feeling of being fooled into a football craze that was exaggerated and which, uh, which went too far. And, and especially in the post-revolutionary era, this has is often is, is the type of stories that I've been documenting in my ethnography. People talking about football as having become too politicized, problematically politicized in many ways, and hence we should not we should not be, we, as a reason why we shouldn't really care as much about football today as we did in, in, the, in the recent past so this is a moment of revelation re reevaluation at the same time I think uh, which uh, and that is why I think the, the, the story is so important as a framing for the whole book
1: was uh, did this football frenzy, this, this bubble that was created did it, did it sweep up um, you know I let me backtrack. One of the things I really liked about the book was the way you, you know, inserted um, conversations and experiences that you had with individuals and that you met and friends that you made in Egypt um, and and talked about their experiences and often had quotes from them, which uh, really, you know, personalized the story. Um, was... Did this bubble sweep up all sectors of society? Was it was it a, a, a bubble that included upper class and lower class Egyptians? Did it affect upper and lower Egypt? Was it the whole country?
0: First of all, thanks for, for, for that you enjoyed the sort of more ethnographic, uh, intimate stories that I'm also trying to integrate in this more larger, long-term narrative. Uh, I think it's a great question. I think it, it depends how you what you how you see class basically right so in terms of economic class yes i think that's that's true it, it was football appealed very much both to very rich people and to very poor people at the same time as i think i mentioned a couple of minutes ago uh, there were a couple of figures at least and types of demographics that were a little bit marginalized by this football bubble by the national formation carved out by this football bubble that were maybe the two intellectuals or intellectuals or the two uh, islamist people right and there's also a moment in time which when when this becomes uh, very apparent and that is when Egypt loses a very important game to Algeria in 2009 and which is also a moment in time when when more criticism is starting to be voiced against this football nationalism and it's very often voiced by exactly these two groups of people the intellectuals the sort of public intellectuals and islamists uh, and the, the so so and they are also very often voicing this criticism from a position of respectability. So they're saying, okay, the, the, this football nationalism has been exaggerated, it's been vulgar, and it's been uh, not particularly refined. we made us focus on the wrong things. So in a way, this criticism is a very classed criticism, right? So it, it's 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 voiced by people who consider themselves superior in terms of education, in terms of maybe piety, to to the people that have been swept away by this bubble. So if you look at class more as a sort of distinction and respectability and refinement, then yes, the bubble was probably more vulgar, less less uh, respectable in many ways, but in terms of Pure economic class. I wouldn't say that there is a there is a strong class dimension to to that that uh, form of football nationalism.
1: So I, I want to. You mentioned the, the the big loss to Algeria in, in two thousand nine. I want to talk about that a little more because that was um, seemed to be a, a clear turning point when the bubble began to burst. Um, how did how did why was that loss so devastating and, and how did things change uh, regarding Egyptians feelings towards football after that loss?
0: Yes, this is the second chapter of the book and it's, uh, it's really focusing in on these two games versus Algeria against Algeria in, in November 20, 2009. And it's the first, there's a game in Egypt, uh, in Cairo, which Egypt just wins by two, two goals to, to zero. Uh, and that means there's a world cup qualification group, right? And, and, The two zero wins means that the two teams end up on exactly the same points and goal difference, Egypt and Algeria. So you have to have a replay in Sudan a few days later, which Algeria wins. Uh, And this is unprecedented. You have two games in short uh, uh, sequence and and one on neutral soil. and for many Egyptians, this was the most important game that has ever been played because the Egyptian team had won all these Africa Cup of Nations, but they had not reached the World Cup, which is sort of the main, the, 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 the global stage where the, the team could show how great it was for for the rest of the world. Right? It failed, uh, and after this failure, the, 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 I should also say that these two games were probably is extremely tense. Uh, there were a lot of fights and outrage, and even diplomatic conflicts between. Egypt and Algeria. So in a way, they were both sort of the the, the peak of the football bubble, but also the, the point, as you say, when things started to break apart. Uh, and that was partly because, uh, because they were, this was the most, you know, the, the natural next step for the Egyptian football bubble would have been to go to the World Cup. Egypt missed the World Cup. It was difficult to sustain the hype. But it was also this thing that all of a sudden you have these critical voices being, being, being uh, heard in the media from Islamists and intellectuals who criticize the bubble for, or like football, for being this exaggerated, vulgar nationalism and everything, right? And very often they're voicing, they're talking about football as being uh, a source of fanaticism, ta'assob, and politics or partisanship, Siasa. Uh, and my argument is that this is a key turning point. This is late two thousand nine, so it's about a year before the revolution in in early two thousand eleven. And after the loss to Algeria, and it's very important, I think, that it was a loss, that it didn't win this game. Right? Uh, football was not what it what it had been before, and it was difficult to sort of sustain the the, the frenzy and the party around the game uh, that had been going on for a few years at this point.
1: So. You know as you document uh, around that time after the uh, the lost algeria and in the next couple of years there's this kind of disillusionment with football in a in a bit a lot of the emphasis on this word "siasa," the politics that have crept into the game and a lot of you know um again a lot of the people that you met and spoke with and and introduced us to in the book um kind of uh you know they 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 regretted the fact that politics had crept into the game that there was you know, they believe there was no place for politics in, in football. And um, I think a lot of us feel that way in, in an idealized sense. A lot of ways sports serve as an escape from politics and other serious issues of the kind. Um, and yet, at the same time, you had the emergence of this group, the Ultras, who in many ways were, were very much a political group and were fighting for their own political rights as fans of football um well so maybe you can start off by talking a little bit about who the ultras were and and what did they bring to the football world
0: yeah um no i'm glad you bring up this issue about politics yes which is a theme that pops up throughout throughout the book i think in several chapters and about the sort of this is quite a complex story about the sort of an unease that a lot of egyptians feel about entanglements between football and politics and I'm trying to write an ethnography about both discourses but also experiences of politics what does politics feel for people and why does it feel so problematic for a lot of Egyptians uh, and how it's sort of is understood as antithetical to nationalism to sound nationalism and that's a sort of a that's a that's one of the more general arguments that I'm making in the book, trying to understand what politics means and feels like in Egypt today, and especially in relationship to nationalism and sports. As for the ultras, um, this is sort of the main, say, second part of the book. It is, is, tells the story about the, the ultra, ultras fans who are first emerging on Egyptian stadiums in 2007, uh, supporting clubs, not the national team. Very important distinction here. So, Akhly Zamalek primarily, but also some other regional clubs. So, ultras fans, I'm, I'm sure some reader uh, listeners would have heard of, are not really unique to Egypt. They've existed in stadiums in Southern Europe since the late 60s, spread through Morocco, Tunisia in the early 2000s, and then were sort of the founders of in Egyptian ultras took most of their inspiration from other ultras in North Africa. Uh, and the, internationally, the ultras movement based their fandom on a number of strict principles. They're against modern football, they're against the police, they're against the media, and they very much insist that football should be watched at the stadium, not on television, right? Uh, and they're also famous for the, the coordinated stadium performances, elaborate flags, chants, firework, graffiti... And they sing and dance for ninety minutes at the stadium. Uh, so my argument about the ultras in Egypt and how they sort of they emerged in the in the late Mubarak era from two thousand and seven onwards is that they they carved out a very distinct, a very different uh, emotional style, which was very different to the type of fandom that had dominated Egypt in the past. It was a totally new way of of being and feeling as a football fan, which was younger, more organized, more independent, and which felt much more international for a lot of people. And this is also, I think, why it became so popular is like attracted thousands, tens of thousands of, of young Egyptian men in their late teens and early 20s in this period.
1: And, and, and what was their influence on football? How did they change football in, in Egypt?
0: So yeah, in, in a number of ways. So first of all, they, they they staked out a new way of being a football fan. Okay, So, a new. I I talk about it as an emotional style. So it's like, which is right. which is quite distinct to the the, the emotional uh, politics of the football bubble. Okay, so they challenged the way football was supported, the kind of emotions and attachment one should have to football teams, how one should behave at the stadium, and also if you should relate to football through the media or more live at the stadium right and in that sense it also challenged the statecraft that the mubarak regime had built around football because ultra being in the their way of being relating to the game was totally different to this football bubble and it was definitely not something that that the mubarak regime the mubarak and his sons could tap into they were they were they might have looked like very normal football men but they didn't look like ultras at all because these kids were like 19 or 20 and yeah, they were just too old and have a totally different approach to the game. So in that way, the ultras pose this challenge to to which which is basically what I talk about as Egypt's football revolution, right? The title of the book. This is this is the core of that that these kids, these young men who organize these new football uh, fan associations, uh, they 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 actually did a revolution within the, the Egypt's football institutions. Uh, and that also made them ostracized by the media and very much securitized by the security forces already before 2011. Uh, so I don't know if you should go into what happened after revolution as well, but
1: yeah, well, well, I want to talk about the revolution a little bit. I, the, you know, it, it was almost the, the football was almost like a revolution within the revolution. Um, the larger revolution, you know, overthrowing Mubarak. Um, how are, how, I guess, how are the two tied together? Kind of the, fo- the ultras football revolution and, and the bigger national revolution. What's the connection between the two?
0: So there are a lot of co- connections, but like, first of all, it's important to, 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 tell, to say that the ultras had started their revolution already before January, 2011. So they had been active at stadiums from t- 2007 Growing very rapidly in two thousand eight and two thousand nine and two thousand ten, so already by two thousand nine, there you have this alternative emotional style, an alternative way of being a football fan that is very posing a very serious challenge to to the way football was politicized by the Mubarak regime. Okay, so that is one thing. But then every, the revolution happens, and that uh, accelerates this 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 revolution inside the sport in 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 a number of ways. So first it gave the ultras much more space to do what they wanted at the stadiums. In 2009 and 10, the police had tried to regulate it, what they were doing in a very strict way. In 2011, the police are sort of withdrawing in, from streets in Egypt in general, from the football stadiums in particular, and the ultras get much more space to, to enact their stadium performances being very um, provocative towards the police and the, sec- and, and the state. So, so this the 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 stadiums really become an arena for for a a very visible part of the, of a revolutionary expression at this time. Second, the ultras also uh, they also participated in the revolutionary struggle in the streets, right? So they had an experience of of fighting the police from before twenty eleven, which made them extremely useful as a as as a. as a a revolutionary force to actually fight off the police in Tahrir Square and and in different street fights in 2011. Although they never say that they did this as a group. They never officially endorsed that, okay, we are going into the streets to fight the police, but people did that as individuals, as they say. So it's an important distinction here, which I, I really want to stress, that they never really said that explicitly, that we're going to do this. And uh, in that sense, also the the ultra struggle became much more visible. like all of a sudden you you see these ultras uh, aesthetics and flags in the streets and uh, fighting the police and and in these demonstrations and protests that were all over Egypt in two thousand
1: eleven. and I mean the ultras the ultras revolution and their their popularity was was relatively short-lived. Um, they they eventually faced a backlash. Um, which I, I think you know you could you could point to the port Said massacre as kind of the the beginning of their their downfall um, can you talk a little about what happened at port Said and how that affected long term how that affected the, the ultras in Egypt
0: absolutely this is uh, probably the most important event in this entire book so on the first of February 2012 uh, the, the Cairo team, Al Ahli, plays El Mastri from Port Said in an away game in Port Said. And uh, the whole match was very rowdy. Uh, and there were like people interfering in, on uh, jumping the fences and getting into the pitch already early in the game. And this is also important to know this is one of the most traditionally one of the fiercest rivalries in Egyptian club football. Anyway, after the final whistle, uh, El Mastri, the home team, wins the game 3 1. Hundreds, if not thousands, of home fans storm into the pitch and they they attack the the Way fans in the stands. The police seemingly, you can see this in in the the footage from television, uh, which is there for anyone to see on YouTube, the police just step back. They don't really try to interfere. Um, And what is happening is that loads and loads of fans are attacking the the Way fans, uh, the Ackley fans in the stands, and in the end, 72 fans, uh, Ackley Ultras fans, are killed. They are strangled, they are stabbed, many die in a stampede as they try to escape out of the stadium. But for some reason, the stadium gates are locked. Until today, it's not exactly clear what happened and why, uh, but, it, but it's sort of accepted that this was some kind of setup, right? So it was some kind of coordination by police, maybe even military, to teach the athlete fans a lesson. Because they had been so involved in the revolutionary struggle, and be- because they had been more and more assertive in their criticism of the security forces at the stadiums over the of the past years, so that is uh, pretty much sort of the event and what happened in Port Said.
1: And of course, there was there were uh, trials, and and perpetrators were held accountable, um, which ultimately seemed to. Work against the ultras. Um, that e- even though they were victims in a sense, uh, it seemed like the public kind of turned against them in the in in the years after the attack. Um, why do you think the the ultimately the ultras kind of fell out of favor with with the people of Egypt?
0: Yeah, I think this is uh, so. It's a two-step thing here maybe we have to say like the first year after the Port Said massacre I think that the ultras were very popular in Egypt I think that's important to stress like there were no games that the leagues were suspended there were no games uh, in Egypt but at the same time the ultras are like pouring into the street of this enormously impressive campaign for justice for their marchers uh, and also for reforms of Egypt's football institutions and they're extremely popular in this period and and they're almost sort of seen as these revolutionary role models uh, like as both being able to do things, but still be doing that in a very respectable and very, uh, and very ordered manner that, that uh, is unprecedented when compared to many other revolutionary forces that didn't really have the ability of actually getting change done. Right. But then, as you say, like about a year later in 2013, so like one year after the Portisade massacre, you have the first round of verdicts uh, of the court cases, uh, for uh, against people accused of having uh, committed the crimes in Port Said, and this is a key moment. It's in early 2013, uh, and the Ultras Akhlaoui, which is the group supporting El Akhli, who have whose members have been killed in Port Said, they have been pushing very hard for the for for these people who are uh, accused defendants to be convicted, and, and among the defendants are mainly supporters from El Mastri, the club from Port Said, who they are convinced had. Kill, carried out the killing, even though it might have been organized by the police and the military uh, in the end you have death sentences against 21 fans from Port Said and that is followed by very infamous scenes outside the Akhli club in central Cairo where ultras Aklawi are celebrating the death sentences of other young men in Port Said now this scene, and they're also insulting the, the people of Port Said in a very explicit manner, if you put it that way as i show in my book this moment made many revolutionaries in egypt who were not necessarily football fans turn against ultras okay why do you celebrate these verdicts shouldn't you focus on the real culprits the police and the military right so it created a break somehow when the ultras lost their position as revolutionary darlings they looked, they came to look like they were focusing more on their on their own interest and on the common good and they sort of Their their image of respectability and uh, as these revolutionary respectable revolutionaries was lost at this point in time. So this is a key point when and after this the ultras have still been around for many years, but it became difficult for them to. They lost their position at the very center of the revolutionary struggle. I think in, in early 2013.
1: And and then of course in 2013 there was the the counter revolution in Egypt and al Sisi took power and how did how did that affect the ultras going forward?
0: As as with many other most other revolutionary forces in Egypt, it's been disaster, uh, a huge backlash in terms of of increased uh, both by the security forces and the judiciary and also the media against them. They have been terrorists labeled as terrorists. Uh, they had. There are also, importantly, there has been no fans at Egyptian games since the Port Said massacre. We have now almost 10 years down the line, and there have not been fans at any domestic games in Egypt. Only international matches, like Champions League matches and the national teams matches, right? So, But at today, the situation is very grim. Uh, most of the leaders of the ultras are either in prison or abroad. Uh, the the biggest ultras cl- uh, organization, the group Ultras Akhlaoui, has been dissolved since 2018. Uh, some other groups are still fighting on, but they are they they can't really do much. And also, there is no recruitment of new members since uh, since there are no games to go to. So it's uh yeah, it's the end of of the ultras in many ways. Right.
1: Do you do you foresee a situation in which the ultras might reemerge in the
0: future? not in the form it used to be i can't really see that uh, i think this was very much a generational formation of people they were in the late teens and early 20s when they started this in the in the late 2000s they're now in the 30s late 30s and uh, many have kids if they're not abroad or in jail as i said uh, and no recruitment as I, you know there hasn't really been a rec- the, the ranks have not been filled with new boys and young men so Right in the, in that form, it's not going to happen. maybe something new, something similar will happen, but, but it has to be done by the new generation of people, um, probably in re- reaction to the current regime rather than in reaction to the Mubarak regime, which was right the, the sort of the context in which the ultras first emerged
1: in In recent years uh, Egypts had actually tremendous success. Uh, they returned to the world cup um Mohamed Salah has emerged as probably the greatest Egyptian football player ever. Um, how has how has his success and and the country's success in general on the world stage uh, affected interest in football in recent years?
0: So this is something that I I, I write about in the postscript of the book. Uh, so it's a, it's a postscript that is sort of taking the story to. Uh, a period between late 2017 and summer of 2019. Uh, And this, as as you just said, is a period when Egyptian national team has experienced the research after a a period of very, very poor results. They managed to qualify for the World Cup and Mohamed Salah is obviously emerging as this extremely, uh, well, one of the best players in the world, by far Egypt's best player ever in in Egyptian history. Egypt also hosted African Cup of Nations again in 2019. Uh, so, my main argument in this final part of the book is that football today, I think it elicits sort of a mixed feelings and quite ambivalent feelings in Egypt. So, on the one hand, people are very happy to see the national team being back in, at the world stage. And also, they're very proud of Salah, this sort of represent, great representative of Egypt uh, at the very top of the, of the international game. On the other hand, there's also this ambivalence and hesitation. Uh, the interest during the World Cup in two thousand eighteen was not at all as as wholeheartedly devoted and, and big as you might have expected it to be, or at least as some people I talked to expected it to be. It's not as unproblematic to like football anymore, and the, the reasons are several. And I think one reason is that this team is not as home and like homegrown as, as the team that was famous in the late 2000s. Most players play abroad, like Salah, for example. Salah, Salah has never really played in Egypt. He, he left Egypt at the age of 21 or something like this. And he never played for Ahli or Zamalek. So he's not really one that close to people here. You know, he's, he's extremely popular and everyone loves him, but he's a different kind of character. He's representing something different right. than, than, people, than the players of, of the previous generation. Moreover, and I think this is also important, there is also this nagging feeling among people I talk to, that it could be problematic to care too much about a game, right? Uh, So there is this lessons learned from the pre-2011 era. Once again, we come back to this idea of politics, you know, that football could become too political and that we could be fooled into to care about too much about the game, so there is a there is hesitancy so that we shouldn't recreate this enormous hype that we had before because we know what that could do, how problematic that could be. So there is this hesitation. People are happy that, that Egyptian teams win the games. They're happy for Salah, but they don't really want, want to allow the media and the politician to mobilize the game as they did in the past. So this is also, I think, the reason why President Sisi has not been able to or not even tried actually to to use football in the same way as Mubarak did. Uh, it's not really possible, I think, to recreate this bubble that has already burst. You know, there, there is something there that it's still nagging. Let's see how for how long. You know, time moves on. And, but right now, I, sure. I feel there is something of like that.
1: You know, you mentioned the postscript. And, and along the lines of what you were just talking about, how kind of um, the politics and people's, you know, people being scared to to get too involved in football there's was, there's was a good quote in the postscript from your friend mahmoud who says football can be dangerous carl the people love football very much and you know I, I there's not there's not an equivalent to football in in the united states um in that sense you know we have you know people are passionate about american football and baseball and basketball but uh no one sport is as tied to the culture um, the sense of nationalism as football is in Egypt. And yet, even here in the United States, there are, you know, in all sports, there are there have been numerous examples of corruption and exploitation of different groups of people and illegal and immoral activity of all kinds. Um, cases of sexual abuse, for example, at certain universities. I've wondered, for example, if certain universities would be better off without American football, that it seems to be a corruptive, corrosive force. It may sound crazy, but do you think Egypt would be better off without football, uh, at least on a professional level?
0: Yeah, it's a great question, uh, and you're absolutely right, of course, about the dangers that you'll list here. And and I, I also, of course, I, I somehow agree with uh, my friend Mahmoud that football is could be dangerous. That's what my whole book shows. That at the same time, I really don't want to don't want it to be like that. I don't really don't want to think that this is. So this is the case, right? It's like I'm a passionate football fan myself, and I see so many positives of watching football and, and supporting a team. The way it creates friendships, brings people together across class divides, ethnicity, could be at least potentially, and religion even. It sends, fosters a sense of community as well, doesn't it? It uh, gives millions of people a, you a know, sense of meaning, an activity to go to every week. So... At the same time, I think, as my book illustrates so where you know quite well, I hope, that that this could be dangerous and that this community that football fosters in Egypt is most often this national community. And is a community that has been possible to politicize in many different ways. Sure, it is problematic, but there are also so many positives of it. And the ultras show that I, I think as well, that you know it has been possible to at least momentarily to uh, to re-emotionalize this national community for pro- progressive even revolutionary purposes uh, so I don't know like I agree with Mahmoud that football can be dangerous and uh, but I, I really don't want to think that Egyptians would be better off without football that would be too sad to, to draw that as a conclusion just if, you know I, I think it's important that they maybe do, if they could keep this, ambivalence and hesitancy vis-a-vis the game that I'm, I'm arguing that they have in the postscript that that could be a good way to to foster more maybe slightly more healthy relationship to the game let's see like only the future can tell i, I guess
1: yeah do you think do you think they'll bring fans back to the to the games anytime soon uh
0: they've been talking about it for for almost 10 years and there's always been these yeah. attempts they there's always um they're saying that, okay, soon the fans are going to come back, but then for some reason they, they always backtrack. Now it seems that they are trying to do it in a much more regular, regulated way through something they call fan IDs, that people have to register for these uh, types of ID cards uh, and register all their details, um, which would be a way, obviously, to, to control who is entering the stadiums and getting the right people there, the, the, the respectable people, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Right. So um, let's yeah. see. Um, it might be happening at some point, but uh, it might also be in a way that we don't really. There's not necessarily that that positive that is happening in that, in the way it will.
1: All right, Carl. I have one one last question for you. But first, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. It's it's the book is really fascinating, um, and uh, I encourage everyone to go out and buy it once again. Book, Carl's book is called uh, Egypt's Football Revolution. Emotion, masculinity, and uneasy politics. Um, Carl, I have one last question for you that I like to ask all of my guests. What is your all-time favorite sports book? My
0: all-time favorite sports book—it's probably uh, Beyond the Boundary, but Sir uh, R. James, right? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, this book about cricket and 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 the English uh, colonialism. It's a great one.